Hi everyone, I'm Lindsay LaValle. Welcome to Rush Hour, the congestion of human trafficking in America. In this podcast, we will address the problem that is human trafficking, not only to spread awareness, but to share information that will help keep you and your community safe. Rush Hour is brought to you by The Wolf Group, powered by eTactics. So how are you this morning, Bill? I'm good, Lindsay. How are you? I'm doing well. I feel like we haven't talked in a long time. What's new in your world? What have you been working on? I see there's new legislation that's gone through. I think maybe you were part of some of that and Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Yeah, we were super excited to see the Trafficking Victims Protection Act get reauthorized uh, right before this last Congress and the president signed it into law. Um, So that's that's super important, you know, just because it is the key piece of legislation that ensures uh, the federal government has all the resources it needs to fight human trafficking. So it was a lot of work, uh, but certainly a labor of love. Yeah, that's great. I think anything we can do to push the needle um, and just to create more awareness and obviously funding, you know, it's likely never enough. But um, but I right. think it's, you know, it's it's always good to be moving in, in a direction. Right. So I think that's great. And thank you for the work that you've done on that, because it's awesome to see. So today we're going to talk about labor trafficking. We've spoken a little bit about how sex trafficking is not the only form of human trafficking. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? It's, you know, it's not something we, we hear as much. It's just not as well known. Maybe it's a little more hidden than some things, but also right in plain sight, right? But tell us a little bit more about that and the definition and, and just a little bit more about it, if you would, Bill. You know, so the United States recognizes two forms of human trafficking, both labor and sex. And you're right, we hear a lot about sex trafficking. And I think it's because of, you know, sort of the the impact that it has and a lot of the, the stories of abuse. And unfortunately, as humans, you know, we kind of can't divert our eyes from the the car crash or the train wreck mm-hmm. you know? and and so when you hear these just horrific stories people are kind of drawn to it but there are some really horrific stories uh within the labor trafficking space as well and labor trafficking is really about using force fraud or coercion to cause somebody to engage in some form of labor right and so it's situations where whether it's through physical force, you can think of what we tend to think of in the United States as, you know, historical slavery that we have had, that would be a form of labor trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. You can think of situations where migrants or foreign nationals enter into a country and then are exploited for labor because uh, they don't have the same labor protections that citizens of that country may have. So it presents in in so many different ways, but it really is about um, taking advantage of somebody for labor for which that trafficker then makes a profit. Right. And I was I was thinking about this. And again, I've had some experience with this. I went to North Park University in Chicago and and I was a nonprofit major. And so I had a lot of nonprofit folks. I was in adult learning um, programs. So I had a lot of nonprofit folks who were working in nonprofits that were in my classes. And one of my classmates started a nonprofit to work with the day laborers in Chicago. So that's a big thing in Chicago. You might pass certain gas stations in the city, um, you know, in the morning, and there are a lot of 
um, Latino men or Hispanic men, you know, gathered in one place. And like, what is, what's going on there? Well, a lot of times it's, it's day laborers. And so they converge on one place and different people that need work, um, need workers, you know, and they come and find these guys and they'll pay them for a day of, of work. But oftentimes just exactly what you just explained. It's, it's not safe. Um, people have died. They, they can be harmed or hurt and there's no insurance or coverage for them. And they're just, you know, kind of left to their own to figure out what to do after that. They also are taken advantage of and aren't paid. So there's just a lot of really awful things that happen to these, these individuals. And so my, this classmate of mine um, started a nonprofit to help them get um, some rights, you know, because, obviously a lot of them are undocumented and things of that nature too. So, you know, they're just very big target for, for that kind of activity. So it's interesting that you say that because I hadn't considered it um, until we met and I started really thinking about human trafficking, that that was a, obviously a form of human trafficking. Yeah. And as we know, you know, human trafficking is all about taking advantage of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that population certainly is very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're vulnerable to being exploited because their lack of immigration status. It could be because they don't understand labor laws, you know, in, in this particular country, right? So, you know, in the, in the example that you're sharing in the United States, right? So it really is highly problematic. And I think what what's also key to our understanding, because I've oftentimes joked, especially when I train law enforcement, you know, and I'm describing labor trafficking, I'm saying, you know, it's where they make these people work really long hours, they don't give them breaks, it's horrendous work environments for really low pay. Mm -hmm. And you know, the joke is, well, that kind of <laughs> right. job in law enforcement, right? Uh, right. But the difference <laughs> is, in, um, you know, the, the difference with labor trafficking is that those individuals are not free to leave, right? So we go back to that free to leave standard that, that I know we've discussed before. And what we mean by that is, is that every day when they get up for work, that trafficker is doing something to hold them in that position, right? So it could be the threat of immigration, you know, calling immigration and having them deported. It could be because they're physically restricting them from doing it. We've seen cases, again, with foreign nationals where workers have withheld passports. You know, they've taken their passport, their identifying document away from them and said, nope, you, you know, you can't leave because I hold your only legal documents. There's a lot of different ways that they can really do it. You know, and another one is the fact that they can take advantage of people who are cognitively impaired, right? Um, so there's a very famous uh, labor trafficking case where uh, an organization, I believe it was, a, I have to go back and check my, my data on this. I believe it was, a, uh, they were making CDs. It was some sort of manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in that particular case, they were actually getting money from the government because they said they were running a program for those with cognitive disabilities or those that, you know, might have a Down syndrome or, or mm -hmm. other things. And they were providing, you know, residential care. But really what it came down to is they were they were physically abusing them, forcing them to work and taking advantage of that vulnerability that they had identified 
and then making a profit, making a profit from the government who was My giving goodness. them supplemental funding, right. but also making a profit from the, the, the manufacturing, the things that they were producing. That's crazy. I had never even thought of that, but that's awful to consider. And I'm sure, you know, those people and their families who maybe sent them there to work had no clue that that was what was going on. So that's, that's insane. What sorts of industries, I mean, you mentioned manufacturing, but what sorts of, of other industries are often involved in labor trafficking? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so interesting because labor trafficking can occur in so many industries. And you mentioned it earlier, you know, happening in plain sight, right? Well, we know sex trafficking is happening in plain sight. Sometimes labor trafficking is happening in even more plain sight, if that's, right. if that's a thing, you know, right? Um, because we see it in restaurants. They might be restaurants that you and I go to to eat. Uh, we see it in places like spas, nail salons. You know, we see it in massage parlors. Oftentimes, people think of massage parlors as on the sex trafficking side, but can more likely be labor trafficking in those types of situations. We see it in manufacturing. We see it in cleaning services. Domestic servitude um, is another big one. Mm -hmm. So nannies or housekeepers are oftentimes exploited in labor trafficking and in the agricultural industry as well. Right. I definitely have heard stories of um, the agricultural side, people coming over and thinking that they're going to be able to live and work and make a better life for themselves. And they end up in, you know, terrible living conditions and, and things of that nature. So there, there's actually a big case out of Ohio. And I know you're, you're based mm -hmm. out of Ohio called Chicken Trillium Farm. Farms. Yeah. Yep. And this was, they were, um, exploiting uh, several impoverished teens from Guatemala. So these are, are kids. Yes. And basically the way that they would lure them in is they would say, we'll pay for you to come into the United States, which is expensive. And in exchange for that, you come work on our egg farm. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they would, it became what's called debt bondage. Yep. And so debt bondage is when you, owe somebody money and you're going to work it off, but the terms are impossible, right? So the right. interest rates are really high or the amount of money that you're being paid is never enough to actually get out of debt. And so it just creates this, this cycle of exploitation because you you are constantly owing the trafficker or who you might believe is like the boss or may come to you initially as, a good faith person, right? right? Because they're offering you a loan to help you with whatever your financial situation is, but then hold you in that stuck in that situation. We had young B Dale on our podcast a while back. And she mentioned that as well, that within the illicit massage parlor industry, that it's, it's difficult because when you go to court, they say, well, what's your split? How much are you making? And they say, well, I'm making 70% um, and the house takes 30. Well, that sounds normal, right? But right when you factor in the debt bondage side of that, you know, there's a ticket for, oh, you got a bottle of water today. Well, you owe me for this and you owe me for housing and you owe me for food. And, you know, and like you said, interest on top of all those things. And it's just a ballooned effect, right? It's, it, it's a never ending ticket where they, they just add on and add on and they're never able to cover it. So, and I, I 
did recall the chicken farm, the egg farm that you mentioned. I think it's not far from where I grew up. Um, and we always kind of wondered when those chicken farms came in, we always kind of wondered what was, you know, they never felt like they were always on the up and up. You know, it's it's an interesting dynamic. And I've, I have heard that um, story from other chicken farms and large farms in the past. So yeah, that's that's wild to think about. What are some of the signs that someone is being trafficked in this way? I mean, we we talked about this being, you know, happening in, in plain sight. I know people that worked in those chicken farms as well. Yeah. So, you know, people that I went to high school with or, or whatever were working there. So it's very good possibility if, you know, that people I know could have possibly been working next to um, people who are being trafficked. So what are the indicators that, that just anyone could or like you said, if we go to a restaurant and we may see things, um, or I get my nails done sometimes, you know, and, and that could happen. So what are some of those indicators that we could be looking for um, just in our everyday lives? I think the biggest one is freedom of movement, right? And so really looking at, yes, you know, you and I have to go to work every day, but if we don't show up to work and, you know, we've got leave, you know, of course, if we have leave and things like that, you know, there, there's no real repercussions for that. These are individuals that um, don't have that freedom of movement. A lot of times we see where they're living in quote unquote company housing um, as a control mechanism. We see situations where they're working seven days a week, 20 hours a day. I think one of the ways that we can really tell is just engaging in conversation, right, with individuals. So you mentioned, you know, nail salon. So I thought it was so interesting. Of course, you know, in in my house we talk a lot about human trafficking, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly my kids have heard heard me speak of it. And so I remember one time my wife and the girls were going to go to uh, get their nails done, mm-hmm. and so they go to a nail salon and they they come back and just sort of joking around, you know, they're telling me about the experience. And I said, well, how did you know the person doing your nails wasn't a victim of human trafficking, right? Because we know nail bonds are are common for that. And so I remember my daughter who was, uh, I think 12 at the time or 13, she looked at me and she said, because I asked dad. And I said, yeah, like, what do you mean you asked, right? Because, you know, we, and we always train professionals, like you don't always ask, right? you never asked, are you a victim of human trafficking, right? right? So <laughs> right. I was so curious to hear what my daughter was going to say. Mm-hmm. And so she goes, well, dad, I started asking her, like, you know, how long has she lived in our, our town? You know, what does she do on the weekends? Does she go to church? You know, like things that would be indicators that, like, they're an active member of the yeah. community. And so, first of all, that was a bit of a, a proud moment as a parent. I'm sure. I'm like, yes. Oh my gosh, my daughter actually is listening to what it. I'm yes. saying. Yeah, right. Well, that too, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm not just speaking into thin air. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, right. I think that, uh, but that's exactly what it is, right? We're mm-hmm. looking at are these people being controlled in such a way that, you know, they don't know any of the local hotspots. You know, if you've got like a, a new restaurant in town that everybody's lining up to go to, right? And they're like, they don't even know that yeah. there's all this buzz about this new restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, they're not allowed to attend religious services if they're a person mm-hmm. of faith. You know, if they go from one location to another, sometimes we see in labor trafficking too, they don't even know where they are, right? So, you know, I'm in Virginia, so they might say, well, I'm in Virginia, but they have no idea what town or city Mm -hmm. they're actually in. So asking those questions, and I oftentimes tell people, especially members of the public, 
I say, look, there's, there's lots of other things that we can be looking for from a more technical standpoint, mm -hmm. but what it really comes down to is looking at whether or not the hairs on the back of our neck are standing up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is there something else that's going on, you know, that just makes us think something isn't sitting right with me. This doesn't yeah. seem like a normal situation. What, what's our gut telling us, right? And I remembered you you said that in the town hall that we had. If if the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, then there's there's probably a reason for that. So yeah, right. that's right. That's a great point. Would you say are more people affected by labor trafficking or sex trafficking? Yeah, that's a great question. Current statistics suggest that labor trafficking is actually much more prominent than sex trafficking, um, but it just goes so undetected. And quite honestly, part of it is we as consumers have to be willing to understand supply chains, right? Where are these different products coming from? Right. So for example, there is rampant labor trafficking within the fishing industry, but we all enjoy fish, you know, mm -hmm. do we ask where it's coming from? Um, you know, there's a big push for electric vehicles right now as an alternative, you know, as green energy, but oftentimes the cobalt mines, which mm -hmm. are essential for those batteries, uh, there's child labor trafficking right. that's occurring in those those areas. We're not asking those questions, right? Uh, the chocolate industry, who doesn't like chocolate? Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of labor trafficking that's happening there. Mm -hmm. So I think really, you know, one of the things that I'd really encourage our listeners to be thinking about is we should be shifting and starting to ask those questions. If it's not necessarily identifying the victims themselves, I think it's also about um, also identifying the industries and the supply chains mm -hmm. and making sure that as consumers, who we are buying from mm -hmm. are actually doing what is right. Um, and I think that's critically important. So besides the chocolate industry, another industry I think that, you know, a lot of folks are familiar with in terms of labor trafficking is the diamond industry. I know when I got married, I was like very particular about my husband, you know, to make sure that he got a Canadian diamond or something just to ensure that it wasn't, you know, some kiddo in Africa or something just like what we see on, I guess, on TV. But, you know, that's all, often all we have to go off of. So, I mean, okay. what are your, what's your knowledge of that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the things that we see around the world is where there are industries like diamond mining, right? Where it's not regulated. I think sometimes in the United States, we take for granted that a lot of our industries are regulated. We have labor laws, Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, that really guides. And so, we don't think about what's happening in some of these other countries where people are being exploited, adults and children. Diamond mining is is a big one where you have individuals that are, you know, being forced into these situations or being controlled. And so I think what's really important for us as consumers is to understand where those products are coming from. I love what you said, you know, when you got married, you know, you, you made sure that uh, your husband was sourcing the diamond from somewhere where there was free trade, meaning that it was free from from being involved in slave labor. I think that's incredibly important. And I think that's one thing, but it's a huge thing that each and every one of us can do in our daily lives to help prevent and stop human trafficking. For sure. I was reading an article the other day about Sheen. I think that's how you pronounce it. But every 
woman in America knows what that website is, but it's fast fashion. And that's kind of a new tagline, fast fashion. But I mean, there's a lot of layers to why that's awful. First of all, our our landfills are chuck full of clothing that you know, is garbage, but Sheen can't say where they are getting their cotton or sourcing their cotton because there are certain places in China that the United States doesn't allow cotton from because of labor laws and because of essentially human trafficking or what we would quote unquote call sweatshops. But I think that's just another industry. And I think you're right. You know, we all have to be cognizant of, of where we spend our dollars. I think that you're you're spot on. And I think it really does take us stepping up and being able to use our voice. You know, we think about development and the roles that we can play beyond just simply looking at being aware of where the products are coming from, right? But also understanding what are some of the factors within those countries that are causing some of that. And I think this is an opportunity too for us to speak to our legislators, our policymakers, Mm -hmm. to talk to them about where we're investing our foreign aid and and international development monies so that we can make sure that we're creating infrastructure in some of these countries to be able to support that. We were looking at the brick kilns, and one of the things that I found interesting was part of the reason they're not willing to switch to machinery as a way to produce bricks is because they don't have the technical expertise to fix the machines if they break, sure. or they don't have the road infrastructure to get parts to the machines if they were to break, right? Sure. And so that's that's one of the predominant reasons why they remain dependent on slave labor to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, we, we really have to start thinking outside of the box, thinking now, you know, what are the different intersection points that are maybe not directly causing human trafficking, although in in some cases certainly it is, but also looking at what are some of those other causal factors where we can really start to invest or draw attention to, to try to eliminate and or prevent human trafficking and forced labor. I think that's a great point, and it's not something I would have really thought of, but, you know, when we think of human trafficking, we think of just bad people, you know, bad people Mm -hmm. selling people, right? Or bad people utilizing other people for their own personal gain. But obviously that still is, is likely a a part of this, but, but infrastructure in other countries, you're right. It can be very archaic, I guess, for less of, you know, no less of a word, but I think that's right. You know, that we wouldn't consider, I mean, you think to coal mining, right? In the U S and West Virginia and how, you know, a lot of my family, they were all coal miners, but, you know, you think about the infrastructure in, in West Virginia, it wasn't, it really wasn't established in the mountains. So the poor labor laws and things of that nature where coal mining came into play was potentially because of lack of infrastructure as well. So that's interesting. That's an interesting point in the, the brick kilns. Would you say that labor trafficking happens more often to a certain demographic of people? So I think it depends. You know, I I think there's some cultural components behind that, right? So if we look at labor trafficking in the United States, we might say that it it tends to happen more towards foreign nationals that are here, particularly those that are undocumented. In other countries, you know, we're looking at different classes of people, right? So we talked about Pakistan, we talked about, uh, you know, the, the diamond mines and things like that. Typically, 
in those countries, um, there might be groups that are marginalized or oppressed due to religious beliefs. So in, in Pakistan, for example, Christians are oftentimes persecuted and oppressed in, in these types of situations. So it, it could be various different things, you know, in countries like India, where there's a caste system, the, the lower castes are, are typically targeted for exploitation. Sure. So it does tend to be marginalized, unprotected classes, you know, again, something that oftentimes as American citizens living in America, America, we tend to, to not really pay attention to, uh, but it is it is definitely happening uh, both within within our borders and extraterritorially as well. What are different places that traffickers will look for these victims? So human traffickers will look, you know, in in any place, right? Trafficking is all about exploiting a vulnerability in order to make profit off of that person's labor or engagement in the commercial sex trade. So, I mean, they'll look for wherever they can find vulnerable populations. Um, it's one of the challenges that we have here in the United States with, you know, so many foreign nationals coming into our country. I think it's important to note that, you know, the issue of immigration as a whole is a different topic, right? And so when we talk about things like securing borders and, and immigration to migration, we have to be careful, right? We know that uh, just because somebody does immigrate into a country, whether legally or illegally, does not mean that they're going to be a victim of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. But it does create a, a vulnerability that can be exploited by traffickers. And in particular, when we see uh, individuals, so like I mentioned in the United States, for example, we see individuals coming from, say, Central America. They are entering the country. They don't have an understanding of the laws. They don't have an understanding of culture or how or specifically labor laws, right? And so they are oftentimes drawn into uh, these different types of exploitive work environments, right? And traffickers know they can take advantage of them. The other thing is we typically see these populations of foreign nationals that tend to congregate, right? Or they, they tend to build communities, right? Because they, they share a similar culture. But what that does is it, um, and I hate to, to draw this analogy, but you, know, you can liken it to a stocked fishing pond, right? So the traffickers know they're much more likely to catch a fish if they go fishing in a stocked pond versus, sure. uh, you know, sort of a non-stocked pond, right? So I think that's a, that's a consideration. And I think it's also a call to action to be able to provide education and awareness and prevention and identifying and mitigating at-risk factors within some of these communities. 100%. My husband and I mentored a refugee family from the Congo and that we had to go through, you know, extensive training before we did that, you know, before we were able to mentor them. But I don't know that the refugee family we, we worked with, I don't know that they had the extensive training on how to live in the U.S., right? So, I mean, that's why the nonprofit obviously partners them with mentors, but you know, there's also the massive language barrier. I mean, just the simplistic thing of they had never received junk mail before, right? So mm -hmm. we would have to go through their mail with them because they thought every piece of mail that they received was something that they that needed an action from them, right? So a credit card application or, you know, they were just being bombarded. So, I mean, just the basics, right? But I think that you're, you're exactly right, that these individuals, you know, and we are a melting pot society in the United States. So we're always going to have immigrants and we're always, we're always going to have people that, you know, come from other places that aren't just like the United States. And I, and I agree with you. I think that we have to be 
um, we have to have things in place, you know, some safety nets in place for these individuals that protect them and educate them on their new livelihood so that they aren't sitting out there with a target on their back. Mm -hmm. No, I think one of the things that I really draw from from your example there is the fact that you had training on how to mentor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's critically important, right? Um, it's really understanding the cultures. It's really understanding, you know, as people uh, integrate into different communities, different societies, that there needs to be that level of cultural understanding because they don't experience things the same way. I, I found it interesting and and this may highlight some of my own, you know, personal ignorance, but working with some groups in the United Kingdom recently, and even even their culture is very different mm -hmm. on how they handle certain things. And so I sure. think understanding um, those cultural differences mm -hmm. uh, and including those in different solutions is is really important, right? Yeah. It, it goes to even, you know, I know in the past we've talked about training for professionals, right? That's a critical piece of training is to understand how different individuals are interacting and engaging in different ways mm -hmm. um, and why that is. Uh, so, so just really critically important when we have issues like human trafficking. Yeah, for sure. So Bill, this has been very interesting. Um, again, it's just a topic that we don't talk about as much. Um, I, I think for me personally, you know, at the end of our our podcast, we always want, want to discuss, you know, a tip for Main Street. I, I think we've kind of touched on that a little. I'll obviously allow you to answer, but um, I think for me, the best tip is that we can all be cognizant of where we spend our dollars. It's again, it's the put your phone down and look up around you, you know, type of thing too. Bill, what would be, you know, just some tips for Main Street to kind of cover the topic of labor trafficking? You know, I think the biggest thing is just really observing people's behaviors and interactions. You know, these are in labor trafficking. It can be something that you won't necessarily interact with, like in a factory or an egg mm -hmm. farm or something like that. But it could also be, as we've mentioned, you know, in a restaurant, a spa, a nail salon, things of that yes. nature. I think really looking at the situation and looking at it from that 30,000 foot view and saying, does this make sense or does something mm -hmm. seem off, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the one thing I really want to hone in for, for our listeners is that when something doesn't seem right, don't ignore it. Take yeah. action. Because so often we're like, well, we just, we just dismiss it, right? And so these sure. things are allowed to, to happen over and over and over again. So if it doesn't seem right, if the person just looks like they're tired, they're malnourished, that looks like, you know, they don't get breaks. They're always there. If you have a favorite restaurant and you go in there and that same waiter or cook or, or dishwasher is there every single mm -hmm. day, you know, for massive hours, those are indicators. If you have an opportunity to interact, like if you're getting your nails done and you end up talking to an individual, does their story seem very scripted or do they seem mm -hmm. like they have a life and engagement in the community in which they live outside of work. Yeah. Um, th those Just are like all your kiddo. key indicators. That's right. You know, asking that's right. about the church, you know, or if they go to church or, you know, I that's think right. that, that's exactly right. Just asking some questions. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, but thank you again for your time, Bill. It's always great to speak with you. And I know everyone really enjoys listening to this podcast and learning from you. So thank you. Thanks everyone for joining us and listening today. Stay safe.